What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here, thanks for tuning in. This week on the show, we are finally helping you deal with your demons of what it was like to go through high school English. Now, if you're anything like me, although you communicate all the time, you never really understood why there were all these rules about what you could say and what's good English versus bad English. And I'm here to tell you that there's no such thing. In fact, I'm not here to tell you. It's our guest this week. We have a linguistics expert named Valerie Friedland. And Valerie is the author of the brand new book, Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. And what she does, what we do in this episode, is take a scientific approach to language and challenge the misconceptions associated with slang, colloquialisms, weird phrases, and more. I also touch on how I feel like I'm approaching boomer territory and don't understand a lot of the younger generation slang, where it came from, and what it means. And ultimately, the goal here is to recognize that for most of our communication, the goal is connection. And how can we leverage our language better to connect and be more effective? Valerie is a professor of linguistics at the University of Nevada, Reno. She writes often for Psychology Today in a blog called Language in the Wild. She's a professor for the Great Courses series. And as I mentioned, author of the brand new book, Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. Let's get into it. Here's our discussion with Valerie about how you can use all of those filler words you want. Enjoy. As somebody who 
pretty much communicates for a living between the podcast and my profession, doing workshops and seminars and speeches and all that stuff. When I saw your book, I felt vindicated. I felt like you are standing up for those of us who believe in communicating in a way that is authentic and not overly constrained. How do you come to write a book that basically justifies using common phrases in everyday communication? Well, you know, I'm a linguist, so that's my my field is to study language. And the funny thing is, we think of this as sort of vindication, but actually it's historical, historical accuracy. So I'm actually writing a book to set the record straight rather than to vindicate. And by by letting people know what the reality is, sort of the scientific, the historical, the empirical uh, facts behind the way we speak, I think vindication will just be a lovely side effect of that. What do you think are the biggest offenders in terms of people's perception of poor use of slang and language? What are the types of things we're kind of arguing against here? Well, I think, you know, the problem is we have this really strong prescriptivist notion of what speech should be. And this is really indoctrinated into us since the time we're tiny little things. Uh, you're a parent. I'm a parent. And of course, what you do with little kids is you correct them all the time. You have an idea of how they should speak. Now, of course, there's natural developmental processes. So kids aren't born talking. They're born learning language, acquiring language from a preset system that they already have the tools for. But we as parents want to make sure our kids have the opportunities that we did. We want to make sure they fit in in ways that we want them to and that they achieve success by ways that we've defined it. And so a lot of that has been tied up with language, um, just like manners, right? We teach our children manners because we have certain social expectations for how they're spo supposed to behave. We also have certain priorities in terms of the language that they should use. But what we don't realize is this is set in socio-historical political accident. There is nothing about those speech features that is wrong. What, what really happens is that they're disliked. And disliked is different than bad. And that's what we tend to forget. And the only reason they're disliked is because people have told us they should be. Um, you know, if you think back to why you dislike them... You say, well, they don't sound good, or I don't like the way they sound, or they make people sound uncertain or stupid. But that's only because you have been taught that that's what they mean. There's no empirical evidence to support, support that. And if that were true, if they were only useless, we wouldn't use them. And if you look at like, for example, which of course I hear a lot about, a lot of complaints and a lot of sort of self-awareness of use, right? A lot of people use like, and they're a little self-conscious about it. Um, first of all, we don't realize it's, it's hundreds of years old. It's not a new thing. We think of it as new because it's come to our conscious uh, awareness recently, but it's actually extremely useful. It's not just sticking in there because one person one day thought, I'm just going to annoy people by using like, there is actually a really good function for it, but we don't know that side of language. That's the problem is we haven't been taught linguistics. We haven't been taught to look at language scientifically. We've been taught to look at language prescriptively. And the only reason we do that is because we learn about it in a context where literacy and written norms are given priorities. But the reality is we spoke for hundreds of thousands of years, well, not hundreds of thousands of years, but it may be a hundred thousand years, um, depending on when you think speaking came along before we started writing it. Writing's relatively recent. Speaking is a much different skill and it predates writing by quite a long time. So we can't 
conflate those two, even though we try to all the time. So what's happened is we've become really conditioned by what we think of as good writing to also evaluate speech that way. And speech is an informal aspect of communication. It's about connection. It's not about correctness. And, and even our notions of correctness are mistaken. I like that last statement. It's about connection rather than correctness. Mm-hmm. When I think about eloquent speech or eloquent communication, it's often clear, concise, and doesn't have some of these colloquial terms. But I also find that that type of communication to me seems the least authentic. Mm-hmm. But I've never thought about why. And what you're highlighting is because we use various types of communication, but essentially we're talking about verbal communication here, simply to connect with the other person and transmit ideas in a way that lands, in a way that moves, influences, emotes, all of those things. Absolutely. And you know, what I think we forget is that the percentage of time we're speaking in a way that really formal standard speech is the best choice for us is a fraction of the time that we're speaking. But we use those norms to judge 99% of the other context. So we're taking the 1% of time where it might be appropriate to talk that way or to think about language that way and using it to judge the 99% of the rest of the time that we're talking. Um, so it's, it's just sort of we need to flip the way we think about it. I like to say let's fr- flip the, str- the script on when it's appropriate to use these kinds of forms. And let's also think about what their utility is, because I think that's where people get lost. A lot of people don't get that they're serving a function because if we believe something, it's hard for us to step back and think, well, maybe what I believe is wrong. I've I've really had very heated debates with people where I've brought up evidence of why these things are actually positive features, why they're useful, why people use them, what the function is, and how they've had these long histories of developing into these things. And they're no different than the other things we do that we don't notice. And people still are like, yeah, okay, you're right. But it just still bothers me. And we were just really ingrained to think this certain way. And we need to, or I think the best way is what would happen if you leaned in instead of leaning out? What is the danger, right? What's mm-hmm. the risk? Okay. Give us a little bit of a peek behind the book covers on the common phrases that you are really supporting. You are scientifically discussing the usefulness of. So we know what kind of language we're talking about here. Okay. So what I've picked in this book are the things that I heard a lot of conversations around as features that a lot of people use, but feel self-conscious about using in their own speech. So in this book, I'm not really going into a lot of strong markers of speech that maybe are from groups we tend to, as a society, disfavor. And, and that is also a whole discussion of how that comes about, this idea that sort of ethnic markers, for example, are bad speech, um, because their, their historical evolution is actually fascinating. But that wasn't really my goal with this book. What I, I wanted to do is not just go into ideas about speech in general and, and things we think are bad, but I wanted to go into the things we think are bad that almost, that are universal <laughs> sort of at, for English speakers in our experience, our daily experience. So what are the things that we probably use ourselves, but feel bad about, right? I've heard so many people comment on their own speech. Uh, actually on several podcasts I've been on, people have brought up 
when they record themselves, how they notice they have certain speech features that come up a lot that annoy them. Oh, I'm going to get into mine because I want you to (laughs) to tell me. So don't worry, that's happening. (laughs) So, you know, people know, you know what, what you do. And um, there's a reason you fall back on those habits. So those are the ones I'm talking about. Also the ones that have made headlines, I really wanted to take on because most of those headlines, and those are things like, like, or vocal fry or singular they, those things that are, are really debated in our culture. Those are the ones that are often based on misinformation when we we read about them. Those are not legitimate arguments that are being made against them. They're born out of the fact we don't like them. They're born out of our beliefs about what language should be like without the recognition that that is just one perspective and there are other perspectives that are empirically based. So I'm not arguing that you have to like these features. I mean, we have the right to dislike things. You know, I might dislike ice cream, but that doesn't make ice cream bad. It doesn't mean somebody else shouldn't like it. So I think that's where I want to go with this is I want to make sure people are aware of the features in their own speech that are maybe disliked or reviled in the popular media that are actually fine. And and they might have a place that you can use them without any kind of, of consequences or worries. I mean, you may want to change it when you're going to a job interview because you don't know other people's perspective, but that doesn't mean it's your fault. That's, that's actually a, a them problem, not a you problem, but that's a you, that's a them problem that you'd still need to watch out for. But these are the features I'm talking about, right? The ones like tags and like, and vocal fry, those kinds of things. And that's what I was thinking, which is what it helps us do learning about this is to free ourselves from some of the worry and concern about how do I sound and is this right? Am I sounding stupid, et cetera? Because to your point, I mean, by whose definition? The flip side of it is awareness of your language patterns and what might be an annoyance is also beneficial if it's going to lead to you getting something you need or you not getting something you need. Right. I mean, it's sort of the know your audience kind of thing, right? Now, what's interesting is um, if you look at the distribution of these features, they're generally the ones I talk about the book. They're really rapidly increasing in American English and actually in a lot of global Englishes as well. So the, the book really covers a lot of different Englishes, even though it takes American English as its sort of base. But they're actually rapidly expanding. So the the trick is they annoy us now, but 50 years from now, they'll just be what's normal. And a lot of that, what I go over in the book is here are examples of all these things that were really annoying to people in the 18th century or the 19th century. Now we don't even think about them. So a great example of that is um, if you say, if you're going to talk about something you're doing continuously in a verb... In, with using a verb, you use the progressive form. That's what we call a grammati- grammaticized expression. That means if ever, if I say I'm going here or I'm walking or I'm talking, it's clear to you that by using the ing on that verb, that it's something in progress or something I do habitually. That's what the progressive is. Well, it's really fa- the the history of progressive is fascinating, and I actually have a chapter on that that will blow your mind. I mean, it's just. So unexpected. And and part of this book is fun, fun things you'll learn about language. But what's interesting is we think of the progressive as fairly formal today. I am walking to the park. But it actually was considered a bad feature up through the 19th century. It really wasn't until the late 19th century that using a progressive was considered standard. It was Wait, considered I don't, How class. would you communicate that? <laughs> if, I, if I'm literally walking to the park, how would I communicate that without saying that? You would just say, I walk to the park. 
it was typically just a present tense verb that was used. So if you look back in Chaucer, for example, when he says he's going to Canterbury, he says basically in, in old uh, Middle English, I go to Canterbury. And it was understood from the context or other words like today I go to Canterbury or uh, always I go to Canterbury. It was understood that it was a progressive sense. But progressive as an actual grammatical marker in English is only about 100 years old. It, it was something that existed, but it wasn't the typical option. And it was usually used in very informal subjective speech among intimates. Um, and it was considered sort of a low class feature. Um, and what's really fascinating is if you look in writings from the time, which is how, you know, obviously we didn't record speech in the 18 and 1900s or, or very much, um, but what you find, well, in the 1900s later, but early on, we don't have a lot of recordings. What you find is if you look at letters, that were written by lower class speakers and women, that's where you predominantly see the progressive form. And so it gradually increased from those groups who are basically the leaders in language change through time. And gradually it became not just what they do, but what everybody does. So today we don't even think of it. In fact, just as you asked, well, how would you do it differently? Just so obvious. But it, it was something that was commented on as being not good speech in the 18th and 19th century. So, you know, it's just a matter of perspective. This episode is brought to you by Rocket Money. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills. I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members on average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash smart. One more time, that's rocketmoney.com slash smart. This episode is brought to you by Hims. We don't want to admit it, but 52% of men over 40 experience some form of erectile dysfunction. But like many health problems, no one wants to talk about or take up hours of your day to deal with it. That's why you need to check out Hims. Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Hims offers an array of high-quality options, including pills or chews for ED, and serums, sprays, or oral options for hair loss. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. No insurance is needed. Pay one low price for your treatments, online visits, ongoing shipments, and provider messaging. You can even manage your plan on the HIMS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com smart. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash smart for your personalized treatment options. One last time, hymns.com slash smart.
Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash twist for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscriptions plan. I have long held this belief that we are getting less articulate over time. I've seen videos of, I'm, I'm thinking of one specifically, but people, you know, 100 years ago, I mean, I guess it's not videos, audios, just different types of communications where not only are the patterns unique, but the phrasing is unique. And there's a lot less of the jargon. And even in younger adults, they sound extremely articulate. So it leads one to believe, and I think a lot of people think this way, that we are continuing to bastardize the language. But it sounds like you're saying that's not actually true. It's not actually true. I mean, there are a number of things you have to think about when you see things like that. Is First of all, the selection of, of materials you have is limited. So you are living in an age where everything is, is available on video, for better or worse, and many times for worse, right? Anybody can say anything they want on video. And, and it is true that there probably has been a, a measurable shift in formality of the way we talk in public forums. That is probably true. So we use more colloquialisms when we're talking in formal context today than we did 100 years ago. But there are a couple of things. The, the, the result, the recordings or the audio that you would get, or even the few videos that exist from 100 years ago, are, are selectively um, more formal and more articulate than the average speaker would have been at that time, right? You're seeing a very selective sample of, of who is talking versus comparing it to the massive influx of a variety of speakers today. So that's not a fair comparison, right? That's apples to oranges, first of all. The other thing is we often think things that sound quaint as being more formal and more articulate. So it, there is a lot that has changed in even 50 years. In fact, our vowels are radically changed and how they're pronounced in American English. So what we say now, I mean, if you th think of young sort of teenage girls, cool, dude, there's some that's called back vowel fronting. And that's where the traditional vowels that were made with the, the back of the at the back of the mouth with the tongue back body being used. It's kind of complex. But anyway, it's a positioning of the tongue. And the tongue is actually moving forward and how that's articulated. Well, there's there's good physiological reasons why that's happening. And it's happened through time. There was the great vowel shift in 14 and 15 and 1600. So this has happened before. It's not anything revolutionary. But what it's done is made all of our vowels sound quite different than 50, 75 years ago. So even that, and vowels are everywhere. So even that little change might make people sound really articulate back then because they sound different and more they're sort of, they, they articulate things differently than we're used to. So it's more salient to us. And what we find in speech is salience matters. When we hear things that stand out, it seems to be conceptually more meaningful to us, um, which is probably one reason why we innovate in language all the time, because different cells, right? Different stands out and it makes you have some sort of iconicity a lot of times in a group. Well, same thing happens when it's a speaker from a hundred years ago, and that sounds different to you. It usually is different in a better way because it's something uh, sort of cute and quaint and charming. 
And so we yeah, have a positive association with it. So I don't think there's any evidence that I've ever seen that suggests that we're getting, you know, dumber in the way we talk or less articulate. I think we're being flooded with examples of speech from genres that we didn't have before. So we do a lot more informal genres of speech that we would record today than we did 100 years ago. And also things have changed so much that our word usage sounds very um, descriptive because it's different. So, you know, one example, a great example is how you oftentimes you'll hear old recording, I shall go, right? Where they, all right, we must go to the dentist even makes it sound more, you know, wow, that's highfalutin dentistry, right? But now we say, yeah, I got to go to the dentist. Well, you're not substantively saying anything different. The only difference there is the verb you're using to express it. And must is sort of, you know, only in legal statutes now. We don't use it very much anymore. Shall went the way of the dodo, at least in American English. It's used a lot more in British English. But the reason that we moved away from shall is we've shifted in politeness culture. So previously, we had a politeness culture that was based on something called positive politeness, which meant that we really wanted to flatter people and make them feel good and, and make us make, sort of work on our self-image so that everybody liked us and admired us. But now we've moved to something called negative politeness, which means we're trying to offset imposition. We want to make sure when we talk to each other, we're not making that person feel obligated or imposed upon in any way. And that's really respectful. Um, so it's just a different way of looking at politeness. So if you say, you shall go there. Well, that implies obligation, like I'm commanding you to go there versus if you say I've you should go there or you, you've got to go there. It just implies that there's probably some external need for it to happen. Not that I'm telling you you must go. So the reason American English got rid of shall is because of this tie in to strict obligation. Um, so if you say something like you, you have to go, yeah, you have to go to that dance. It would be awesome. That doesn't say I'm going to force you to go to this dance. It's simply saying, yeah, it seems cool. There's a necessity in the world for that to happen. And so I think we, we separate ourselves from the knowledge of why things change over time. So we just judge them on the surface. Like you were saying, when you listen back then, it sounds so you know, smart and articulate. It's just that you're not understanding why the things have changed, that there are larger forces that operate that make change happen. And the reasons are usually good ones. What is the biggest driver of language change and acceptance of language use change over time? Well, that's a great question and also a really big question um, because it depends a lot on which type of change you're talking about and when it's occurred. So if you look at the, you know, if you look at the history of English, right? If you've ever read Beowulf, which most of us have painfully been forced to <laughs> like at least look at it at some point. And I hated yes. It? Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, it's rarely the thing that people are saying, yes, you've got to read Beowulf, man. It's awesome. <laughs> right? Probably yeah. not what you hear at home. But well, if you look at that language, this is if you want to say that language is, is that language changes decay, then we should be slapping ourselves silly because Beowulf, you can't even read it because it's basically a different language and it has evolved to the English we speak today. Right. That's old English. We even call it different things just because we obviously need to set it apart somehow because we didn't understand it anymore to modern English has had so many things happen that have led to those changes. Um, not 
uh, least of all invasions, right? A lot of times when you when you come into contact with other languages for whatever reason, that can be through invasion or just through cultural contact, like trade can often introduce various, for, through various means, it can introduce changes or settlement and migration. That's a huge influence on language change. We, we meet new people. We talk about different things. We have new developments that we need to name, right? A lot of vocabulary comes into the world because we are doing different activities or we're using different um, objects. So computer is a great example. Twitter is a great example. Google, all of those are new words because we didn't have those types of things previously. But deeper changes, so the type where you go from like shall or must to have to, ones that do something with syntax or grammar or sound changes. So for example, in Old English, we didn't have a difference between F and V or S and Z. Those developed later, but we had a a, a couple additional sounds like German H kind of sound. So the reason you have GH spellings in words like night is because they used to be nicht. It used to have that little like gut, you know, throat choking kind of sound that used to exist in English. And that has died over time. Um, And those are things that evolve because of large scale cultural shifts, social forces, invasions that happen at times where underlying pressures linguistically kind of met them in the middle and whatever pressures those social forces emitted on the language system were able to come through at that moment. So we have these underlying pressures on language at all times. We have a cognitive preference for certain types of sounds and certain types of combinations and certain processing issues that we have depending on how language is formed. So sort of grammar, there are certain ways we structure grammar because it makes sense to us in processing. Um, So for example, in languages that don't have case, which Old English used to have, but it doesn't anymore, it wouldn't really work if you just stuck subjects at the end of a sentence, because how would you know that was the subject? But in Old English, we could stick a subject wherever we wanted because you had a little case marker on it that said, hey, I'm a subject. So, you know, from a cognitive standpoint, certain things go with other things. So when you lose those things through language contact, for example, as we lost case due to shifts in uh, our stress pattern, then your brain is like, well, I've got to reorganize this because I can't understand who's doing what to whom anymore. So for cognitive necessity, when it meets certain social pressures that have caused changes elsewhere, you shift, you shift in time. There's also articulatory pressures. So certain sounds are really hard to make together. You know, say a word like sixth, right? That's that's like Sally selling seashells. I can barely (laughs) say that too. It's very complicated. So it's a natural inherent pressure to reduce consonant complexity in words like that. So all of us do it to some degree, but sometimes you come from a language background. Your family might come from a language background. Your ethnic group might come from a language background where consonant clusters aren't allowed at all. Many, many languages don't allow any consonants to come into contact. So for example, Hawaiian bans all clusters. Um, and Hebrew wait, wait, has- What does that mean? Bans all that, clusters? That means that con- you cannot s- syllable. So if in a word like me, you have no consonant clusters. It's just a consonant and a vowel. But in a word like sixths, which is one one syllable, it has a lot of consonants that cluster together. Does oh, that make okay. sense? I see. Yeah, yeah. Some languages don't allow it at all. So if you are a language that's borrowing a lot of terminology, so English has become very popular to borrow, and you might take a word from English and it has a bunch of consonants, it's going to cause some problems. So you're either going to add a vowel to break up those consonants, or you're going to delete some. 
So what happens when you have a mass influx of people who don't have consonant clusters allowed in their language? Well, as you start to live together and assimilate, that's probably going to affect your language. And it's all born of a natural tendency. So that's what I meant when I meant linguistic pressures meet social forces, right? And, and they have to come together at specific times and places. So we don't just randomly delete consonants. We typically do it when there's some sort of social trigger that it makes it more allowable to do so. And that's what slowly, things like that, slowly move ch- t- language to massive changes over time. That was a really long answer, but that's sort of the gist. No, it's great because I have for some reason, never assumed that the majority of changes in language were due to a mixing of cultures, if you will. I think that's the trick is we all speak every day. So we think we know a lot about language and we do. We know a lot about certain aspects of language, but we don't necessarily know how it works. It's kind of like you drive your car every day and you're pretty good at that. But if I if I break down on the side of the highway, I don't know how to fix it. You know, it's it's we just don't understand the mechanics of language um, and the mechanics of language are really what drive the things that happen that we tend to think of as bad. And, you know, I think also it's important to note that it's not simply contact among languages or different cultures that cause language change. That is one major force that has shaped English over time massively. So you had, of course, um, you know, you had the the Northmen or the Vikings in the eighth and ninth centuries that were surprisingly influential. I mean, I think people tend to, to think of them as just coming in and raiding and leaving with great, you know, great prizes and gold. But actually there was a lot of settlement and assimilation. And that was a big mixing because the Vikings had Germanic dialects that were quite similar to the West Germanic dialects that were basically English comes from. And so whenever you have dialects that are pretty close to the same language together, that also causes a lot of mixing. So we have a lot of um, of Viking words that came into English that are fundamental to English today. So a great example is they, right? The pronoun they and the pronoun them, those are actually Viking borrowings. Um, from Old Norse. So, you know, a lot of these everyday words like window and sister, those are all from from Vikings, right? So from Old Norse. And we don't even think about these other facets. So that's not really, a, it is, I mean, there, there were a different variety of German, but it's, again, we often have contact with people who speak a lot like us, but not exactly like us. And that influences as well. Or we have social pressures that happen that make us start thinking about projecting a different identity. And that also is a really important factor. So I'd say more today because we don't have these kinds of wide, widespread invasions that we used to have in old and middle English periods. Nowadays, we have some cultural contact with people that speak a different language. So Spanish would, of course, be a big influence today. But the, the bigger influence on modern English is actually social identity and how we project social identity through language. And we often don't think about that, but it's a huge force on language, a huge one. Explain that social identity impacts language. I don't understand. Well, that it's a great question, actually, because it is something we don't think about. But I want to compare it to social influencers. So you think about TikTok or um, Instagram, and there are people that become incredibly uh, powerful on those mediums because they do something similar to what a lot of people are doing it, but they do it in a way that catches on and then people emulate them and they become super popular. And then they have, you know, 5 million followers and great, um, you know, great amounts of money they're making, which is awesome. Well, language works a lot of the same way. There are social influencers in language and usually those social influences 
influencers are those that are risk takers with language. So people that are not saying the same things everybody else says, because we like to, we like to stand out and language is no different. And what happens is these really low level linguistic pressures that I was talking about on language, like this in tendency to not articulate lots of consonants in a cluster, or there are certain sound sequences that seem to be more natural than others. Um, vowels often tend to front if they're made in the, with the back of the mouth, which is part of that process of back vowel fronting I was talking about over time. These are just sort of inherent tendencies of language that we have witnessed happen over and over and over in all languages. So that suggests we have some, some cognitive and some articulatory predisposition to move language in certain directions. So we all have these inherent tendencies, but if, if it were true that they were the full force of language change, then we would all speak the same way because we'd follow all those inherent tendencies all the time. We don't do that. So what's really important is who seems to model that behavior in such a way that those inherent linguistic tendencies take on some social meaning and then become popular and imitable so that others pick it up to for that same social identity. And that's where this idea of social influencers comes in because okay. these inherent pressures seem to be sometimes found in more groups other, rather than others. And that, that tends to be people that are less inhibitory with their language. So white, older white men are the most conservative in all language studies because they have a lot to lose by changing up the way they talk, right? Because they hold the power and they have, have been rewarded over and over again for the way they talk. So there, there's no motivation for them to allow inherent pressures to take control of their speech, right? They just don't do it. It doesn't get any benefit. They get benefit from talking the way they talk. But think about children. And children are not in the same social world that old white men tend to be, right? Where they, they're in boardrooms or in educational institutions wielding power. Children are on playgrounds and on sports teams and in, in you know holding tanks that we call schools in middle school. <laughs> so they're coming together and they're from the incredibly diverse backgrounds. Most children go to school with people they probably won't hang out with as adults, right? Very different social groups. And they see so much more in terms of options for language. Not only that, but they also have a lot more neural flexibility as children. So adults lose a lot of neurons as they get older. They also lose the ability to form new neural networks and make connections. So that atrophies as we age. So you have these two things. You have this intense social awareness as adolescents, and then you have this intense cognitive sort of structure building going on at the same time, which makes you primed for noticing very, very sort of subtle distributions and statistical probabilities in language that you don't notice as adults. So if the right kid is doing it, it goes viral. Ah, and that's when it gets picked up very unconsciously. This is not conscious behavior. This is like, oh my God, there's something really cool about John. And I I, I feel attracted to it. And whatever quality that I associate with John, probably, you know, he's tough or he's masculine or he's macho or he's smart or whatever, you know, he's a dork. I mean, there's all sorts of different qualities that can come across it, get attached to that really sort of unusual variant in his speech that he's doing. And it's a very subtle difference usually. And then if I associate with that quality, as long as it's an alienable quality, meaning that it can be picked up, it's not one that's really strongly marked for, you know, Southernness or Afri being African-American or something where it's not sort of something I could take and put on my own speech. It gets adopted by others that identify with that quality 
then all of a sudden it becomes a new craze. So it goes the linguistic equivalent of viral among a certain subset of young speakers. Well, those speakers get older and they become the next adults. And then that gets passed on to their children. And children have a real a serious propensity to move language forward. So any very subtle, low-level tendencies in their speech that has a social backing, meaning there's some social benefit for doing it, that seems to keep moving, keep progressing forward till it becomes more widespread, more widely diverse, used in more context. And it then becomes the new norm. And that's how language proceed, language change proceeds. So it doesn't even need to be language contact. It's social contact. I now feel like I'm the old guy when I genuinely can't understand full sentences of some 12-year-olds. And, and it's funny because as you were mentioning the whole kids, children, all that often being the ones to change the language, it reminded me of a phrase that my seven-year-old might still say, actually. He said it for a while that I thought, that makes a lot of sense. He would say yesternight instead of last night. He would say yesternight. You know, we did it yesternight. And I remember going, dude, that makes sense. Like if it's yesterday, why isn't it yesternight? And so I could say- Right. And to your point, like the neurons and the awareness and all of that, they don't have the rules. They're just trying to explain based off the knowledge they have, which oftentimes can simplify things. And then I could see, especially with today's you know availability of finding people, if that language caught on, that leading to a change. So it just I could see all of those social contacts at play there. And what's interesting is actually they do have all the rules. That's, that's where you're slightly wrong there. We, we are born with this inherent knowledge of sort of underlying structures, what's allowable in language and what's not. I mean, there, I, I'm not trying to say there are no, no rules in language when I say that these, these changes are Tell okay. my old English teacher that because I have PTSD <laughs> talking about this stuff. Like it was never a lot of easy people, for me. A lot of people feel rules. that way. <laughs> the, the old English, <laughs> yeah. that's it's very tricky. Yes. So, so language has rules, but they differ from the rules that we have for it. But what your son was exhibiting was incredible creativity with some rules he already had. So yesterday was a pattern. So what he was doing is pattern analogy which is actually quite complex. And that's what we actually lose as we age. We lose the ability to do these really intricate analyses of patterns and then apply them into new situations. And that was a perfect example of a kid doing that, right? Yeah, he was I taking he a pattern it, and, like, and adding it. Sense. It does. It makes yeah. total sense. Total sense. So let's talk about generational and let's talk about today. The things we're, we're seeing today. I am almost 40. So let's say uh, I was in high school, was that 22-ish years ago was the last time I was in high school. That doesn't seem that long ago in terms of change to be able to happen. I mean, I get it. But the language is already drastically different if you were to go be a senior in high school. How does that happen so fast if we are raising those kids with our language? Well, I, you know, it's really, language change does happen very fast. It can happen in a couple of decades. Uh, but there are different types of differences and that's sort of key. So if you're talking about vocabulary, vocabulary is very superficial. It's an extremely easy thing to pick up because how often do you say hella, right? I mean, you don't say it all that often or, um, you know, BFFR. I don't know if I've ever said it to be really honest with you. <laughs> Probably not. I have, I, I, I live near California, so I'm in, in the area of Northern California. So I probably heard it a lot more and maybe even. Oh, use I know it myself. people say it. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. So, or my daughter is talking about a word now called say, she's like, oh, he had maximum riz. 
Riz, I just learned about that. Like yes. a couple months ago. It's very I love listening. It's very handy having teenagers because I learn a lot of new lingo. But but I That's can pick what I'm those saying up. though. For you, for like you using you as a great example, right? With your teenager. Okay. It's not that long ago that you were the one, your generation, your, you know, our age, whatever was was driving the conversation. So to already have so many words we don't understand. How does that happen? Well, because as I was saying, vocabulary is very easy. It's so easy to learn new words. I mean, I could set a task for myself to learn a new word every day and I could do it, but I can't set a task for myself to learn a new vowel every day. So yeah, there are different levels of language that can change and, and vocabulary is the most accessible one for change. And it's also the most visible one. So if I start producing a vowel slightly differently, so a great example is the a vowel. Um, it's actually very different depending on where you're from in the United States. So uh, if I'm from California or Nevada, I'd say I'll, I'll put my groceries in a bag. Oh, so yeah, I back yeah, yeah. my app, yeah. but if I'm yeah. in New York, I'll yeah. be at my groceries. So yeah. just that one little change, but that's taken a lot of incremental little changes to get to those. And people don't notice them until, wow, it's so 50 years later and suddenly you're putting your groceries in bags. But but vocabulary items, though, I could just pick up. So if my daughter is using Riz, I can go, oh, that's kind of a cool word. I mean, she hates it when I do that, but I can. So it's pretty easy and it has a lot of power. So if I pick up a word that's young and hip and I use it in school, it makes it gives that quality to me pretty quickly. I mean, as long as it's authentic. So I can't use it very easily. If I walk around saying Riz, I don't get a lot of friends that way. But if my daughter uses it, it makes her fit in really easily. So it's a very accessible way to learn new things to make you fit into a group. But I think the more substantive changes like like, um, which people think is just a vocabulary people have stuck in, but it's actually not. And as I, I have a chap, a whole chapter devoted to like because it is fascinating. It's actually a grammatical feature and it has a really interesting function, actually several functions, none of which are just an arbitrary word stuck in. So it's not actually just a vocabulary word. It's a much deeper level of, of shift. And that actually, though, has come into our language really fast since about the 1990s. So there were some Canadian researchers that looked at data from the early 1990s and compared that to one decade later in Canadian speech and sort of spontaneous speech that they had a corpora of or a collection of. And they found that the use of like used in this non-traditional way as a discourse marker or a quotative verb had increased um, about 60% in that one decade. So here is something that shows example, an example of exactly what you're talking about with, you know, you have in the 1990s, people didn't use it all that much. It was sort of relegated to a specific group, you know, young Californian kind of identity. Then all of a sudden it took off like wildfire. And now we, here we are 30 years later and like is everywhere. So it, it did tra travel very quickly. And that happened because a very influential persona or social identity gets associated with that feature that it becomes recognizable, not just to the people that are using it initially, but then whatever quality it represents starts to be considered useful or whatever purpose it serves to more and more groups really rapidly. So it's spreading this way across the social hierarchy. So it starts in one group and then within you know a few months, it's, oh my God, that's really cool. I'm going to start doing it. And then it just gets picks up steam and it happens with young kids first. So if you look at the same research that these researchers in Canada did, they studied very young kids and it's up to, I think, 14 or 15 year old kids with like use. And they found that the younger kids use like more than the older kids, 
which means that what happens is the younger kids are looking to the older kids for models, linguistic models. And when something seems like it's an up and coming feature, like a, a new thing that's happening that has a really positive identity or a positive association, or it's useful in some way, they don't just pick it up. They pick it up and go to the extreme with it, which is why when my daughter was six or seven, she used like all the time. She still okay. uses it to some degree, but I remember thinking, holy crap. I actually think it was more of an expletive I said, but right, anyway, yeah. you get my drift. I noticed <laughs> yeah. it. It was so obvious. And we see that. We can listen to our kids say dude or like or something like that a lot at a certain age. That's usually slightly younger kids, like 10 and below, because they're practicing and they're trying it out. And we call that the adolescent peak, which is where their youth really skyrockets because they've taken a feature that's used in the next generation, like the next decade up, maybe a 15 or 16 year old, and they're learning it and they're trying it out and they're playing with it. If it feels successful, then they'll slowly dampen their use, but they use it as, as a, as still at a higher amount than the people before them. Then the children coming up behind them use them as the model and they go even further in its use. So within two decade, decades, you can go from sort of just starting to appear as a feature to once you've worked to, through you know a five-year difference, all of a sudden the five-year-olds, when the 15-year-olds were older, get up to be 15 and now they're using it at a rate higher than those original 15-year-olds did. And it has become a new form in their speech. Does that make so sense? So are you saying that if younger kids, we'll call it, you know, six to 10, whatever it is, hear a word, get used, and it seems like it maybe has some power, some usefulness, they will overuse it to see if they get the same result. And if that's the case, one, that's a easy way that that word kind of lives on. And two, that's how they learn to properly utilize it in their vocabulary going forward. Is that like general? I would say generally that's right. Just, I mean, it depends on what you're talking about. Vocab. I'm, I'm sort of probably talking about something other than vocabulary here, because as I said, vocabulary is very quick and fleeting. Uh, a lot of times vocabulary words will die out within before the five-year-old would even notice it. And, and they're usually not in the same space um, in terms of what kinds of things get talked about by teenagers versus five-year-olds, but more these sort of systemic patterns like like use, like vocal fry, like using dude, which actually has is more than just a vocabulary word. Dude is used as a sentential marker in many ways. So I don't know. You said you have boys. I don't know if you've noticed them saying dude a lot. It's sort of bro now, I think. But it's it's bro. It's yeah, bro. <laughs> they use it a lot because they're trying out its its power. In a very subconscious kind of way. Um, and then, so low-level features like vowels, we find the same thing. It's not conscious. Kid, little kids aren't saying, well, I'm going to try this out. They're, they're just learning what the people around them say versus their parents. Because if you think about it, if you're a parent that comes from a different country and speaks with a different, with an accent, like my parents both had French accents. I, didn't, I don't speak with a French accent because they're not the model right? They're not who I care about once I hit school. So I learned my parents' system. Then I go to school and all of a sudden I'm like, look at these cool people. Who are you, parents? You're so uncool. I want to be as far away from you as possible. I want to talk like them. So you, it's called vernacular reorganization. That's sort of the fancy word for it. And it simply means that our grammar starts reorganizing according to our peer group. And it's not as conscious as I'm trying this on and seeing if I like it. It's more 
I'm using it. I might, we might find, we tend to find this example where little younger kids use it to a, a slight degree more or even extensively more than the generation before them. If it's a new norm coming into play, some things don't get picked up, but if it is something that we're going to have that change, you were talking about rapid change within two generations within two decades. That's what the pattern will find. Sometimes they don't get picked up, but in that yeah, case, okay. So when I think of a word, I think of it as a vocabulary word, but the difference being words like, like, or maybe dude, bro, whatever, they are more than a vocabulary. They are a, what is it called? I don't even they, know. A they, style they become of, a, they become part of our linguistic style and they have a, they have a function. They've become, they have a either, function. Right, there we go. They've either, either become grammaticized, meaning they are starting to encode a certain type of grammatical purpose, or they've become enregistered with meanings, um, which means that we have started to associate them with some conventionalized purposes beyond simply being a random vocabulary word. So, I mean, dude's a great example because it is a word that's not just a term. You might say, dude, which means stop it, asshole, right? I mean, has that sense? Or you, you might commiserate, dude. Or you can say, dude, dude, look at this, where it's not like you're not calling someone. It's not the same thing as, hey, I'm just calling this friend a name, right? You're saying, I need, this is a di discourse marker, dude, where it's sort of saying, hey, look, pay attention to this. It's serving a function beyond just what the meaning of that word was, which is funny because the meaning of the word dude actually a hundred years ago was incredibly insulting. It was, it had nothing to do with the meaning of dude today. It was actually a effeminate dandy. If you called someone a dude, they would often challenge you to a duel because you were basically calling them sort of a pretentious, ostentatious dandy. <laughs> so that See, is flipped completely. The reason I wanted to poke on this is because the thing that I've noticed a ton in my four-year-old is the word literally. I mean, he says it <laughs> constantly, but I'm starting to sense why I know I use it and I use it with emphasis and there's mm -hmm. a, there's a big point of attention to it. So I don't use it that often, but if I'm talking to my wife, I'll say, no, he literally did X, Y, Z. And so I can imagine my son being like, okay, that had a lot of weight behind it. And so he just uses it everywhere. Well, I feel so like you're that's a similar about, type thing. Right. Literally use non-literally. Is that what you're talking about? Your son uses it non-literally, <laughs> yeah, which, yes, which a lot yes. of people really hate. And actually, that's also a chapter in the book because that's one of those other things that people say, I can't stop using it. But I, it's right. I know it's I know it's wrong. And again, it isn't wrong. It's just not what some other some people like because they've been trained that literally means a certain thing. To that, I say. Think about the word very. Uh, when you say, I'm very hungry, that might be the same case where you're saying, I'm literally starving to death. Well, I'm not literally starving to death. I'm still standing and I'm truly not on a desert island with nothing to eat. So it's non-literal. It's a figurative use of, of that sense. And it's used for emphasis. So your son is basically doing exactly what we've done for generations, actually centuries. He's taking something that he notices a certain emphatic use and distilling it away from this larger meaning that you've sort of set it into. So you're using for both emphasis and for literal meaning, right? Because you're using it literally. He is pulling out just the emphatic point because it's a powerful word. But what I want to draw attention to is how this is exactly what has given us most intensifiers that we have used through time. So the word very didn't just mean highly. 
actually centuries ago. It meant true or actual. And what happened over time is when something is true, it possesses 100% of that quality. Or if something's actual, it it is something that has 100% of whatever you're describing, which is a very high amount, right? So it started to get used, not in just cases where you were talking about true things. So often you'll see in old Bibles, in, in you know 15th and 16th century Bibles even, you can see it used to say he was a true prophet. He was a very prophet. You'll see it written. Um, so very was used to mean true. And we still see it used this way sometimes where you say it was on this very spot that he dropped dead. And it, that means it's on this actual or true spot. Yes. But- what, what speakers have done, probably children, heard their parents say, he was the very prophet. And that was emphatic. And that meant something big and extreme. So very started getting used for highly rather than true or actual. So now it's the rare and sort of obsolete use to say something is true using very. And instead, it's the emphatic use. So it's funny that we've, we've snapshotted literally because it is our our cultural moment. That's the intensifier that has become what's changing. But if we actually look at the word real or the word very, they both meant true or actual and over time have what we call semantically bleached to where they only have to a full amount or to a high extent left in their meaning. And that's exactly what your son's doing with literally. It's just the same process, new word. And because it's a new word and it's one that we still remember what it used to mean, it bothers those of us that use it literally. Ah, there you go. Which brings us full circle, actually, because this is where we started, right? Thinking about how a word might bother us doesn't make it wrong. And the word literally is actually that exact word, which is which is funny. <laughs> It feels like we are getting more lazy with language. It feels like all the changes are in place to communicate lazily. And I have a feeling you're going to say, no, that's not the case because you are defending bad language. But it also feels like that could work because, I mean, everything we're trying to do is more efficient. It's more time restricted. It's everybody's busier. Is there any truth to that? <laughs> I mean, okay, there's a lot of different, I'm going to step back and rephrase several things here. Lazy is a very evaluative word for um, simplification, right? And what you're saying is like, we're simplifying things. But, but to that, I'd say, well, progressive is actually complicated. And that's a new thing we're doing. It's a lot more complicated. You know, you actually hear more and more people using multiple modals. Like he might could do that, which is a very Southern feature. But you say- I'm sorry, you know, he might could do that? People yes, are saying yes, that? Yes, people are saying that. Or they're using different, like he will- possibly might do that. You know, you hear, you do hear that come up. Those are actually increased complications. So we, we often say, you know, when a Southerner says I might could do that, you might say, Oh my God, he makes no sense. That's stupid. That's simple. Well, it's not actually, it's more complicated. And it's a Scots Irish feature that came over with early colonization. And it just happened to be retained in the South because that's where a lot of Scots Irish settlement happened. So it has a really interesting history, but it's not simplification. Or if you hear people, I've heard people complain about uh, athlete, the word athlete, people say athlete. Well, again, that's not, that's not simplification. That's complication. So I think what I'm trying to point out here is what we pay attention to might be what we see as simplification, but that's actually not true of our speech. We don't only do things that simplify, 
But to that, I'd say, look at Old English. It had case endings. It had case marking. It had gender marking. So whether it was masculine, feminine, or neuter. So for example, wife was neuter in Old English, which is kind of odd, but still a fact, right? You had number marked on words as well. You had verb classes. So you had strong class verbs and weak class verbs, which is why you say things like uh, swim, swam, swam, because that's a strong class verb versus something like, um, you know, jog, jogged, which is a weak class verb. Well, the majority of verbs in Old English were strong class verbs. Very, We didn't have that many weak class verbs, which were ED endings. But over time, that got simplified, if you want to say it that way, where all these interior changes in words like swim, swam, sung, sing, swim, swam, swam, sing, sang, sung, um, those type things simplified over time. So more and more words just got ED added. So we have been doing this simplification process for centuries, but most, it, you know, 20, 30 years ago, most people didn't say, oh, look what dumbasses we are because we don't use case endings anymore. So, you know, it, it's, I think you need the long perspective here in terms of the idea of simplification. But I think the point being, no, we're not getting lazier. Are we, are we more, are we always moving towards more efficient communication? Yes. And does language tend to be super redundant? Absolutely. So for example, if I say I have $3, I'm double marking a plural. Because if you're not, you know, if, if you're not from the outer space, you know that three means I have several. I have more than one dollar, which means it's plural by default. So I don't really need an S on that to mark it. And in fact, we're very arbitrary in what we've kept from old English. Plural marking just happened to be one of the things that we left. Um, and we only took one type of plural marker from old English. So I used to say things like shoein and iron, just like oxen and children, because that's an old English plural marker. So I just kept one plural marker. I've simplified that, but I don't really need a plural marker at all if I note plural in some other fashion like three. So redundancy reduction is a really integral part of language and has been over time. We don't want to be more complex than we need to. I mean, why? You no one likes redundancy. If you had a company and you were running it and you had a lot of redundancy, what is a what is a better way to run that company? Is it simpler and, and lazier to get rid of redundancy? No, it's more efficient and better. So why do we think about running businesses that way, but get upset when people run language that way? I love the idea of, um, you know, the redundancy in language is what we might actually be getting rid of. That's such a better way of putting it in general. And the more we've had this conversation, the more I just realized, like, I'm becoming the old guy, which is just <laughs> fascinating to think about. We're uh, all the question, old guy. <laughs> I know, right? And last question for you is, when people pick up this book and they read it, what are you hoping they get from it? What do you want? What change do you want them to make in their behavior or their thought process? Well, you know, I think it depends on what perspective you're taking when you come to the book. For those that have these features in their own speech, because those are the ones I've picked, the ones that people can identify with, I want people to stop apologizing for using them. I don't want people, I want people to, to feel like, okay, if I use like, there's a reason I'm using it. If I have vocal fry in my voice, it's because I want to come across as more authoritative and more urban and professional. It's not because I, I have this annoying tick in my voice. It's, I want to redefine the way we look at ourselves when we use these features so that we have a more positive outlook as speakers. I think if you're coming to the book with the perspective that I think a lot of our conversation has sort of talked about, like, I believe these things about language and I, I'm, I need to be convinced that I'm wrong because I really do fundamentally feel that this is bad language, sloppy language, lazy language, and we need to stop it. I just want you to understand there's a separate perspective. 
right? You've had one perspective drilled into you your whole life. When you started school and people told you, you know, don't end sentences with prepositions and don't leave your modifiers to dangle. And your mom and dad said, it's, it, you, it is I rather than it's me. You know, those types of lessons that we've learned, it's okay that you've learned those, but you need to open your mind to realize that there are other ways to look at language and scientific ways to look at language. And just like if you go on a new diet, it's better to go on a diet that's informed through science and empirical research than just to say, yeah, I'm going to eat Twinkies all the time because I feel like that's going to help me. There are different, right? There are different approaches. And so I'm offering a secondary approach. So that's the takeaway I want is you don't have to like these features, but you do have to realize that maybe you've been misinformed about why you dislike them. And, and what my overall goal is, this will help enrich our communication going forward. And I think it does. I mean, just in this conversation, I didn't know what exactly we'd get out of it, but I had an inkling of why I wanted to have it. And, and just so everybody knows, a lot of it is because still to this day, understanding where, and I know this isn't what we've been talking about, but where a comma goes, so grammar and can't end with this. I just never understood it. And so I think, you know, a lifetime of, knowing that lack of skill makes language even more complicated or like there are more rules of there needs to be. And I think a lot of what you're saying is to an extent that doesn't need to be the case if you think about the use of language in the first place. Right. And and also, if you recognize that really the fundamental role of language is to help build connection, it's to right. establish relationship. You don't you don't talk to the people you love with very formal English. You talk to them with the, the sort of language that intimates connection and, and solidarity and camaraderie and companionship. And those are not bad things. Right. There's nothing negative about that. Um, so there are certainly times when maybe more formal speech is appropriate, just like there's times when writing is appropriate. But I think we just need to learn that those are both okay. It doesn't have to be an either or proposition. It can be a little bit of both. But I am curious, you had mentioned there were things in your speech that you've noticed, and I'd love to hear what they were. Well, the biggest one, the I, I haven't said this on this show, and now I'm nervous because <laughs> people will listen and they can hear it. I use the word right all the time. I say, right. So I'll say something and then I'll say, right. And it bothers me because I'm breaking up my statement, putting this word in to, to what, to make myself, to, to get agreement, to make sure people agree with it. That's my, the biggest thing I can't stand about my Vocal that's habits. really funny because that's my habit too. I am really? that it's it's I call it the professorial right because uh -huh. I didn't do it. I didn't do it until I, I started teaching because I'll be in the middle of a lecture and I'm I'm wanting to make sure my students are with me. So I'll say, so we do this, right? And then we do that. So I'm I'm doing a listenership check with that right. And so I call it the listenership right. Um, and people, it's, you're not the first to comment on that. Actually, that was one of the chapters I considered for the book because it, several people have commented on it and there's so many to choose from. That was, that was uh, one of them. But, uh, and actually Mark Zuckerberg has been called out for that exact right use um, because he does it a lot in his speech. And it actually seems to be a, a very male thing because I've had quite a few male podcasters actually say that that's a feature that they, they, either heard from listeners about their speech or they try to control. But think about it this way. It can be excessive. So, I mean, anything used excessively, it's, it's like ice cream. I can like it and it's a good thing, but if I overeat, it's not a good thing. So anything used excessively can be problematic. But 
what if we reshaped that and we looked at it instead as what's your goal or purpose in doing it? Well, your goal is, is conscientiousness because you're checking to make sure that the people you're listening with have a moment to catch up to you and affirm that they're there. And that's really the purpose of that, right? Is it sort of a, not a, I'm not actually asking for your consent or agreement. I'm asking that you catch up to me. I'm just asking to make sure that you're where I'm at. And that's actually a pretty conscientious thing to do as a speaker. Um, but because it's sort of in the middle of our speech and it's like all sorts of discourse markers, things we stick in there that don't actually have a literal meaning, we tend to not like. So that has gotten a bad rap. But again, if you flip it a little bit and look at why am I doing it, what's its purpose, you can see that actually it's it's a pretty conscientious one. Well, the craziest thing is to your point, the reason I put it in there, there's multitudes, but all of them are with good intent. So one is for the listener to catch up. Another is clarity. If if a guest says, well, actually, no, I, that doesn't bother me. I, I'm like, great. <laughs> My point is to learn. So when I say, right, if they go, well, no, that's not true. So it, it is all with good intent to help the conversation, the learning, the retention, all of that. And it just, again, reminds me of what we're talking about. So why am I judging that, assuming it's not detrimental to the conversation because it happens too often, which I don't think it's quite there. Why judge that? Why evaluate it? Which is really what your message in extent is. If my whole goal is connecting, making sure there's me and you are connected, the listener and us are connected. Big deal. It's really fascinating to think about that. It is. I mean, you you think about there's two sides to every conversation and that's sort of where it gets a little bit fuzzy is there's the side of the speaker who has certain intentions when they're talking. And it's the side of the perceiver, the listener who might take what you say in a different way. And so I think with right, there are people, if they don't like that feature that might have a, a bad perception of it. And you're listening to those people, right? You're paying attention when, with your paranoia about that feature, or you're, you're trying to stop it from your speeches because you're not listening to your head. You're listening to their head. Um, And so it's just who you're prioritizing. But my argument in the book is really we should prioritize facts rather than beliefs. And that will help us get to where we need to be in terms of linguistic accommodation. Valerie, this has been excellent. I really love expanding my mind in this way and learning of things that truly I've never thought of, but have implications even outside of exactly what we're talking about. Brand new book, Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English comes out. I mean, we will air it obviously after it's out, but just for my knowledge, it's around mid-April. I've got April 18th, it looks like. Yeah, around tax day. It's it's sort of, you know, to make you feel better after you've paid taxes. Yes, it's April 18th is the date that like literally dude comes out. I'm very excited. We will uh, hold off on the interview until then. Like literally dude arguing for the good and bad English, standing up for all of us out there who like to use the word like or literally. Valerie, where else can people find you? Are you on social? Where can we learn from you so that we keep our uh, communication habits going? Sure. Well, I do have a website, just ValerieFriedland.com. And that's um, F-R-I-D-L-A-N-D. Everyone wants to stick an E in there. No E. Uh, You can go there and find (laughs) a lot of the stuff that I've done. But I also write a monthly blog for Psychology Today. 
And that's called Language in the Wild. So if you just look up Valerie Friedland's Psychology Today or Language in the Wild Psychology Today, you can see my thoughts on all sorts of different aspects of language. And that one ranges from anything that's sort of contemporary that that month to, with our speech. And it can be things from um, accent hallucination, which is a fascinating way that we have accent bias, to the different meanings of the word love, to um, teen talk. It's, it's a really fun blog to read. So I'd love it if people jumped on there and take a look at what I've written. That's awesome. We will link to that. Valerie, thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely. It was a blast. Our guest this week was Valerie Fridman, who is hosted as always by Chris Stemp and produced by yours truly, John Rojas. Valerie's book, Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English, is available wherever books are sold. If you'd ever like to get in touch with the podcast, you can reach us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we'll see you all next episode.